today on the Tearsheet Podcast. You could imagine a world where Square ends up becoming one of the biggest um, digital banks in, in the U.S. and possibly abroad because they have both the consumer side with Cash App, which has done extremely well, and are acquiring customers at much, much lower acquisition costs than, than some of the digital challenger banks are. And they have the merchant side and then have created a closed-loop payments ecosystem from that. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Shuman Bhattacharya. Today's guest is Michael Sidgmore. Michael is a partner at Broadhaven Ventures, which is a VC fund affiliated with Broadhaven Capital Partners, an independent fintech investment bank that's done over $55 billion in transaction volume. Broadhaven Ventures has investments in known fintechs like Credit Justo, Kayash, and Moneylion. Its global portfolio includes some companies whose main business may not have initially been financial services, but have built out financial services products. He is also a venture partner at Goodwater Capital, a consumer tech VC that's invested in TOS, Monzo, Stash, and other well-known fintechs. Thanks for being on our podcast today, Michael. Hey, Suman. Thanks for having me. Great, great to be here. So before we get into your investment thesis, it may be interesting to hear a little bit about how you got into fintech investing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually... Uh, started my career uh, at Goldman Sachs in London. I, I went to, to undergrad, um, did my university degree in, in, in the UK as well. So went to London School of Economics. Um, and how I ended up in the UK was actually initially <laughs> tried to play soccer, um, football in UK parlance, and ended up uh, playing for a semi-pro team, or non-league team as they call it, uh, but got injured, um, fell in love with London. Uh, and after a year of, of university in the US, decided to transfer to LSE, where I was exposed to the world of finance, ended up going to Goldman Sachs uh, on their on their fintech investing team. It's called the Principal Strategic Investments Team. Uh, so I've really been in fintech my entire career, from uh, you know from starting at Goldman Sachs in London um, in, in 2012, 2013, right as fintech was starting to become a thing, um, and then moved to the startup world. Uh, was an early employee at Mosaic Solar Finance Business, and then iCapital, um, a, a tech-enabled uh, alternative investment platform. Uh, so I was early employee at both of those places uh, on the sales side, and then met my partner uh, from Broadhaven Capital Partners, and we, we started Broadhaven Ventures at the end of 2016. So what excites you about financial services and fintech specifically? It's a, it's, it's a really interesting question at, at this point in time, and I think there's, there's been a few waves of fintech now. So I think if we rewind the tape, uh, 10 years or so. And, and I think you could argue there were people in the early 2000s who were, who were building fintech companies. Uh, they might just not have called it that back then. But if you think back kind of post-global financial crisis, um, when companies like Lending Club and other marketplace lenders and marketplace finance businesses were starting to take hold, uh, kind of fintech 1.0 is really around uh, disruption and disintermediation. So you saw companies like Lending Club or Zopa in the UK um, try to build businesses to disintermediate banks uh, and financial services institutions um, by providing better experience, better customer experiences, lower fees, more transparency, which which really was born out of um, I think a you know a distrust of banks uh, in large part from millennials. Um, so you saw you know digital banks and challenger banks be created as a result of that. Then you kind of have gotten into the kind of the 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 past few years where you've seen a lot of fintech incumbent collaboration, and honestly, I think. We probably would have expected to see more four or five years ago. We would have expected to see more incumbent 
fintech collaboration and, and acquisitions, um, which we're actually now only starting to see. Uh, and then now I think this, this period of fintech is really about rebundling of financial services institutions, uh, but it's being done by digital players and those digital players may end up being the winners. So I think what, what really excites me about fintech are, are two things. And then there's a number of subcategories as a result of that. But one is um, rebundling of a bank by, by new fintech players. So you could imagine a world where Square ends up becoming one of the biggest um, digital banks in, in the US and possibly abroad because they have both the consumer side with Cash App, which has done extremely well and are acquiring customers at much, much lower acquisition costs than, than some of the digital challenger banks are. And they have the merchant side and then have created a closed loop payments ecosystem from that. Um, so you can imagine worlds where those types of businesses end up actually becoming big financial services brands as, as with some other challenger banks. So I think that that's one really interesting piece. And then I think the other really interesting piece um, that we're starting to see emerge is, is non-fintechs becoming fintechs. So due to the creation of the infrastructure layer, really ushered in by Plaid, um, but then companies like Marketa, which do card issuing um, and other banking as a service or payments as a service platforms, you're really now seeing the ability for um, marketplaces, consumer, consumer tech businesses, SMB platforms like Shopify, they're enabling, um, they're enabling people to, to stay on the platforms where they do business, transact, or buy things, and they can offer financial services products to their constituents, whether it's merchants or consumers. I think that's a really interesting feature of FinTech now, and that's really being enabled by the infrastructure layer. So thinking about the great rebundling, as some people call it, and non-FinTech companies or non-financial companies getting into financial services, what sorts of consumer problems do you think are the best places to put your investments? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's different ways to answer that question based on one, um, geography. So I, th I think we can, we can split that up into uh, places like the US and Europe versus places like Latin America and Asia, where there's very different uh, levels of incumbent uh, bank competition or, or penetration from those incumbents to consumers um, and how that's affecting either ability for companies to create better user experiences or, or gain market share. Uh, and then I think you can think about different, um, different types of, of consumer problems you're trying to solve with financial services as well. Um, so I think if I, if I take those two pieces, so geographically, I, I think, um, you know, in the US or Europe, you're really going after a customer experience problem. And I think digital challengers actually have a chance to, to build very big businesses as a result of creating a decidedly better experience. There's a reason why businesses like Monzo or Revolut in the UK, um, businesses like Chime or Moneylion in the US uh, ha have, have really gained large, uh, large followings and, and large number of customers. The reason why is because they are creating a better experience than than, their, than the traditional challengers or the, the traditional incumbents and they're challenging that status quo. So I think um, they have the ability to create uh, differentiated businesses and you see them expanding horizontally into other areas. So like Monzo and Revolut also have um, banking business, uh, uh, business banking as well, in addition to consumer banking businesses. So I think there's, there, there's now this kind of 
we've gotten our customer base. We're going to expand horizontally. And I think that's a threat to incumbents to some extent. Now, I, I will caveat that by saying incumbents may be slow to move, but they're not dumb. Uh, look at Goldman Sachs, an example who you could actually argue is, is probably one of the faster moving incumbents. But what they've done with Marcus, both in the US and in the UK, is, is quite remarkable. I mean, on, on the consumer lending side, I've gotten to billion dollars of loans originated in six months. That took Lending Club over four years to get there, I believe. And then, you know, on the UK side, they've they've gotten to 25 billion in savings in only a few years. So I think you're seeing, you know, you're seeing incumbents realize they need to create better experiences by either building or at some point I think we'll see them buy. Um, but that that's I think what's defining the the kind of US European landscape. In places like Latin America and Asia, I think what you what you have is um, a highly underpenetrated banking ecosystem where digital challengers can actually uh, serve a whole population that is underbanked, underserved, and then expand horizontally and build really big businesses. So New Bank's an example of that in Brazil. Um, they have, I believe, 20 million customers at this point. Uh, they're, I think, by, by valuation at the very least, the, the, the highest value digital bank, close to $10 billion. Uh, they're now expanding into Mexico um, to expand beyond Brazil, which is a very large TAM. Um, and then businesses like Toss in Korea, about a fourth of Korea's population uses TOS, which started out as a P2P payments business, is now a digital bank, and um, you know, re really going after an incumbent landscape um, that gives them a huge opportunity as a as a digital player, mobile player. Um, so that that's kind of enabling them to build a full fledged digital bank and expand horizontally and offer a lot of things that that others may not. So I think in some ways what we may see is digital challengers solve a number of core consumer problems. And, and they're no different than what traditional banks have, have solved. It could be consumer lending, it could be savings, it could be wealth management, um, it could be current accounts and banking. And I think, and then it could be into the business banking side of things. So I think you, you could see in other markets like Latin America or Asia, the ability for these companies to expand horizontally and build really big businesses. Um, so can you get into some of the um, some of the business cases there uh, that you're working on with some of your portfolio companies? Yeah, absolutely. So we've invested in both, uh, you know, traditional fintech companies. We're investors in Credit Justo, which is a small business lender in Mexico that's backed by Goldman Sachs, uh, QED, and Kazak, amongst others. Um, and then we're investors in non-fintech companies that have the ability to, in our view, um, offer financial services or financial products to their customers, um, like Covi, which is a car leasing platform in Brazil um, that leases cars to Uber and DD drivers uh, and partners with OEMs to do so. So they've clear, created a fleet management solution. Uh, and then Nowports, which is a uh, digital freight forwarder in Mexico and across Latin America that's enabling, um, that's enabling SMEs to and freight forwarder shippers, exporters and importers to track uh, their shipments digitally from, from point to point. Uh, and, and I think what we see there is, is there's really a huge customer need um, on the banking side, on the payment side, and insurance in a number of these cases, and companies that are meeting customers at a, at their point of need. And you know, some of the companies we're invested in, like Kobe and Nowports, are really meeting customers at a specific point of need. There are other companies we're not invested in, like Arapi, for example, which is uh, similar to DoorDash for Latin America. It's a delivery platform. Um, you know, they're 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 dealing with customers every day. They're meeting with them at a specific point of need. And from doing that, 
they establish a relationship of trust and of high engagement that I think many financial services institutions struggle to have. And therefore, I think the thesis there is that these companies can be the ones to provide financial services offerings to them, to their, to their customers, because they're already engaging with them in something that they need to use either every day or quite often. So, you know, it, it's, not, it, it's not too far-fetched to think that a, a business like Covey, they're enabling drivers who can't, who can't otherwise get access to a car because they don't have a credit score or they don't have a bank account to be able to get access to drive a car for Uber or Didi. This is, the, this is their first opportunity to get access to a car on a weekly lease through Covey. They can then, you know, once you, once you have their income stream and you are the ones paying them, you can do a lot of other things with them. So I think that that's where we get excited about thinking about kind of solving consumer problems that may not be specifically FinTech related, but can, that can become FinTech related over time. And I think what this goes back to is really the, the, the point about underpenetration of banking services in a place like Latin America, where, you know, in, in Mexico, 30 some odd percent SME credit penetration, there's sub 15% credit card penetration on the consumer side. Uh, so there's really big opportunities to provide financial services to a number of people who just have historically not been served by financial institutions, or in some cases, don't trust financial institutions. What are some of the lessons from the Latin American region that you feel are applicable to a market, for instance, like the U.S. or the U.K.? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question, um, kind of thinking about that in reverse, because what we've, you know, I think the past few years of, of fintech and tech more broadly in a place like Latin America is a lot of people thinking, how can we take what's been done in the U.S. and build the, you know, the XYZ in the U.S. for Latin America or for another another region. I think you can think about that in reverse um, because in, in some ways, the fact that LATAM, FinTech, LATAM companies may not start out in financial services, but are creating embedded finance platforms. I think there's a lot, a lot for US FinTech companies or non-FinTech companies to learn from what these non-FinTech companies in Latin America are doing to meet customers at their point of need solve something for them and then figure out how to how to offer financial services products as a result of that. So I think I think that's one thing to learn. Um, I think, you know, th this may be in part due to exchange rate, but I think LATAM founders tend to be relatively frugal and conscious of their burn rates as well. I, I know it's cheaper. Co cost of living is cheaper. Uh, it's cheaper to hire there. Um, but but I think we've been, you know, on, on the whole, really impressed with how founders are thinking about building their business. We often very early on hear them think about how do I get to monthly profitability? Um, how, how do I think about running an efficient business? And I think, you know, from a, a venture capital perspective, which is just as important to the founders as it is to VCs, is how efficient is a business? So for every dollar you invest, how do you make sure you're getting multiples of that dollar in return on invested capital from a revenue perspective? Because that's what creates real enterprise value. And then that means you obviously have to raise less capital. So uh, the less capital you raise, the less dilution there is. And that ends up benefiting everybody, most importantly, the founders and, and team who are working so hard to build build great businesses. So quickly, do you think that the the challenge or the, the lesson that can be learned from non-financial companies going into financial services in Latin America and taking those lessons to the US and the UK, do you think the challenge is technology related? The, uh, sorry, the lessons are technology related or do you think they're user experience related? I think they're more user experience related um, just because 
you know, it, it really is, you know, people who are building businesses that may not be fintech businesses, um, you know, they're, they're thinking about how to solve the, the kind of first consumer problem is how do, how do I build a business that consumers need? And then once they've solved that, then they think about, okay, what are the other things that I can do? And, and, and just to be fair, I mean, there are plenty of U.S. and European companies thinking about how they can create embedded finance solutions. Um, so it's not, it's not that, that U.S. Or, or European fintechs aren't thinking about this uh, or non-fintechs aren't thinking about this and, and expanding into being fintech companies as well. But I, I, I do think that, you know, LATAM founders who are building businesses like this um, have one eye on building a great business that's focused on that core product, but they often also think about themselves as fintech companies. So a lot of the founders we work with, um, you wouldn't normally think of a, you know, logistics business as a fintech company, but, you know, I think the, the founders of Nowports would say, you know, we are very much a fintech company as well. And they feel that that's really important to their DNA and the business they're trying to build. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, that, that's a really important piece of it. The one piece I will say as, as an investor that, that I try to be very conscious of is, you know, we are fintech investors investing in non-fintech companies at times with the idea over time that they become a fintech business. I think we try to be very respectful and careful of how much we feel the company should be pushing and building out fintech products or services, because the reality is, is there's, there's so much um, room to run in many of these cases and building a great core product that there's a time and a place to build a fintech product. And it's about balancing, you know, how much of your core business have you built and doing a really good job of that and creating great user experience, making sure customers like the product, use the product and are retained. Then it's about building a fintech platform or set of products and services. Um, so I think we've had to really balance that. And I think that's at least for us kind of to, to, to answer your question about what are some of the learnings, lessons learned. I mean, certainly for us, what, one of our lessons learned is make sure that, you know, we really balance the, the need and desire for building fintech products, fintech attached products on a non-fintech platform at the right time and place and not rush into that because you can build a really good core business. And that's important too. One of the things that we've written about a lot at Tearsheet is this concept of embedded finance. And I think you've highlighted some of the challenges with trying to attach a financial services underpinning to a non-financial services business. And I think you could argue that, particularly now during the coronavirus crisis, as more people look to digital services for not only financial services, but retail and other things, that you know the effects of COVID-19 are pushing that digitization uh, what do you think are going to be some of the lingering effects uh, in financial services that will last longer, um, even beyond the pandemic? It's a great question. Um, we spent a lot of time thinking about this because um, as, an, as early stage investors, we're not just thinking about what's going to happen over the next one to two years, but what's going to really have staying power and, and impact consumer behavior enterprise behavior over the next three to five to 10 years. So I think I'll, I'll answer that question kind of three areas. So one is digital transformation of the enterprise. Two is digital financial services and how that impacts the consumer. And three is the changing consumer behavior. So I think this, this, this virus has ushered in an awareness about things in different ways, which I'll touch on as well. Um, kind of to, to touch on the, the first point, digital transformation of the enterprise, so 
I think you because people are now work from home, they have to conduct business in different ways, have to do it virtually and digitally. I think what you're seeing is um, enterprises realize they have to transform their own businesses digitally and do that really fast. So we had a business actually that just got acquired by DocuSign this past week called Live Oak Technologies. They're a virtual business platform enabling large enterprises, banks. Uh, so some of the top banks in the U.S., insurance companies or investors and 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 uh, big customers uh, of Live Oak. And, you know, what we saw, particularly during the pandemic, was that um, these banks know they need to find a way to communicate with customers and complete complex transactions uh, or negotiations virtually. And, and Live Oak was enabling them to do that. They are now embedded, they now will be embedded into DocuSign to do things um, like complete complex transactions, like a, you know, 401k rollover form or onboarding a, a wealth client virtually, uh, but also get into things like remote online notary. So I, I think you, you will see increased um, digital transformation within the enterprise. I think you will see that in, in two ways. One is you'll see companies um, realizing they need to buy software products, fintech software products, um, to, to, to transform their, their own customer experiences and do that quickly, uh, or they'll acquire, um, or, or tech companies like a DocuSign will acquire businesses like Live Oak to do that and provide those services to the enterprise. And then I think the other piece of that is it won't get ripped out because once it's there, it's a decidedly better experience and it won't get ripped out. So I think that's over the long term, that's going to be a really interesting trend. Um, on the consumer side, I think there's two things. So one is um, I think that people are going to uh, adopt digital payments and digital banking over the medium to long term. And the reason why is they're going to realize how frictionless of an experience it is. Um, and it may even change cultural behavior in places like Latin America or Japan, like you mentioned, where investors in a business called Cash, K-Y-A-S-H. It's a Japanese P2P payments and digital banking business. And Japan, like much of Latin America, is, is very much a cash-based economy. Uh, but we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing a shift to, you know, increasing number of digital payments because of COVID. And, and in two ways, one is just uh, people aren't, going out and, um, you know, transacting as much uh, in person. So they have to use digital finance to do that. Uh, number two is I think you see an awareness of COVID itself, that people don't want to put their card into the card reader because that means they're touching the card and there could be a transmission of germs. They don't want to they, they hand cash over to somebody else. South Korea actually banned the, the circulation of notes for a few weeks. So I think when you see things like that, I think I think digital payments is going to benefit from this, and and over the long term, I think should give consumers a much better everyday financial services experience. And then three is you know just changing consumer behavior in general, and I think particularly relative to COVID and and the very unfortunate impacts that this has had on society as a whole. Um, you know, it's it's going to create this awareness that's going to make people do things in different ways. So. Um, you know, things like planning for the bereavement process and thinking about kind of other parts of life uh, are things that people are going to do. I mean, on that, on that point, we actually just um, invested alongside a number of other uh, growth investors, including Highland Europe, into a company called Fairwill in the UK. They're the leading digital wills, uh, probate and direct cremation business that's really helping people have a much cheaper, better and digital end of life planning process. Uh, and, you know, obviously there you're seeing people 
uh, really start to think about, oh, I need to do my will. Uh, I should think about that. And it's, it's a very unfortunate um, you know, reality that, that we live in today because of what's happened with COVID, but it, but it really is making people think about this. And there are companies like Farewell who I think what, what got us so excited about what, what the team is building there is they, they have built a decidedly better technology experience, but they've done so with such an incredible amount of empathy and they've screened for that and who they've hired, how they've built their product and how they communicate with, with people that you're going to see technology solutions crop up that really enable people to change consumer behavior and help them change consumer behavior as, as an impact of COVID. So you've talked a little bit about uh, how, how COVID is affecting the, uh, you know, your course of how you invest in companies, you know, the priorities around um, digital and automation instead of in person. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the pandemic has affected your, um, the flow of your, uh, your day-to-day operations? Like for instance, is it harder to close earlier stage deals? Uh, is, it, is it easy to carry out your business over a series of Zoom calls? Uh, how has it affected your day-to-day? Uh, great question. So for us from a um, day-to-day operations in terms of um, running our fund, uh, my partner and I communicating, we actually started our fund in a remote work setting. I'm based in, in the Bay Area in SF. Um, he's based between Chicago and New York. Our, the, our bank, uh, our biggest offices are in Chicago and New York. So he's between those two, the, those two offices. So from a day-to-day running of the fund perspective and, and evaluating founders, uh, that that hasn't really changed much other than we usually would like to meet founders in person. And we'd never, up until a few months ago, our past two investments, we have done remotely. But up until that, we'd always met the founder in person. Uh, I think we, we think that's important, right? It's it's important to build a, a relationship of trust, um, getting to know somebody, spending time with them, uh, and then getting to know us just as well. And I think th- there's nothing that replaces in-person meetings to do that. So um, up until the pandemic, we, we, we hadn't done that. Um, we have made investments during the pandemic. So Farewell, which I mentioned, was, was totally remote. Uh, that Dan, the founder there, actually closed his entire round remotely and, and had a ton of interest from a number of large VCs. Um, Highland, who was the lead of the, of the, it was a 20 million pound round, Series B, um, totally remote. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's totally doable to do this. Uh, cash in Japan, we also did. Uh, as a remote investment, the, the, the founder there, Shin, uh, closed a $45 million round uh, remotely. Now, what, what, you know, there were previous investors who had invested before and had met, met Shin um, who had invested as well. So it makes it a little different. I think a few takeaways from that, though. Uh, one is um, I think it's, it's totally possible. And in some ways, you can have, although you can't meet in person, you can have more conversations over Zoom in a quicker period of time because um, be, because you don't have to deal with people's travel schedules and things like that. So you can actually accelerate conversations a lot quicker. I don't think it can replace in-person conversations and meeting and spending time either with the team and the founders or in the ecosystem too. I mean, we really like to spend a lot of time in the ecosystems we, we invest in. So like LATAM, we had one investment down there from 2017, Credit Justo where we, we, we co-led a seed round with Elevar Equity. And we started going down to Mexico City because we were on the board. So, you know, that then cropped into, you know, six investments down in Latam over time by spending time in the ecosystem. And I do think that's important. So you can't replace that. 
Um, but but it, I think it certainly can be done. And, and you know, we're very really excited about the founders and teams we're partnering with in those cases. I think the other lesson learned, um, which hopefully is helpful for founders as well, is in both of the cases where we invested, uh, we knew the lead VC from the last round or the current round very well. And that made it easier for us to get comfortable with the business because we had a relationship of trust with that lead VC. So well, one thing I've shared with, with founders, um, some of our founders, other founders who I've talked to is that, you know, really make sure you have a great set of VCs already in the business and make sure they're spending a lot of time helping to get new VCs up to speed with your business. Because I think in a world where we may not be able to meet with founders for quite some time, um, you know, being able to trust an underwrite from a VC who we know well or have done work with, um, that, that I think will, will make it easier for a new investor to come in and be able to underwrite an investment uh, with a founder that they've never met in person. Well, Michael, uh, thank you very much for being with us today, and uh, we look forward to following your progress. Thanks a lot, Suman. Really appreciate you having me on.